0: We're looking at the book of Jude, so if you'll turn there, it's the last book of the Bible before Revelation, and um, a short book for sure, only 25 verses and 613 words. A lot to say and much to learn from this book, and as I told some of you that were here last week, I really appreciate Pastor uh, Brandon encouraging me uh, to take the time to write a little synopsis of the book that we're teaching. And so we've been doing that in the bulletin. And so uh, I want to read that to you again. And it kind of goes along with the theme that's behind me. A community without Christ is a community in crisis. In a time when the world was falling apart, the church was still being formed and aggressive persecution was underway. Another evil was taking place. False teachers were bringing in heresy. Jude reminds the believers that God in the past had blessed others, but when they became unbelieving, disobedient, or wicked, they lost their blessings. The challenge for us is to remain faithful to the God of our salvation and remember that he is able to keep us from stumbling. A community without God has never survived. And today in the world we see, our country we see it, And in the churches, we see it. Without Christ, without God in the center of things, the world has become a mess. Our nation is in trouble. At the time of Jude's writing, Rome was in control. The Jewish religion had been allowed to stay in place because it brought some culture and some order to um, society. But Christianity was quickly overtaking them in, in preeminence. Nero was reaching out against the church, Peter and Paul were probably in jail or in prison. Christians were being persecuted and put to death. And at the same time, false teachers were coming into the church. Apostasy was growing. So Jude writes to the believers, the young church, much like Peter had, words of warning, words of encouragement, contend for the faith, fight for the faith, battle for it. So the main idea of the book is defend the faith against false teachers, strengthen yourself, and be merciful to those who are struggling with their faith. We saw last week in the very first wor- the very first verse, three important words that you are called, sanctified, and preserved. Called means that you were divinely selected. Sanctified that you are being consecrated, being set apart for the work of God. And preserved was the Greek meaning behind that is you are guarded. It's your, you're his property and he is, he is guarding. So we would be preserved or guarded from any loss. And then in the second verse, we saw three words, mercy, peace, and love. Divine kindness for the forgiveness of our sins. Quietness or rest in the midst of trouble. Security and safety is what the word peace means. And then love, Jude uses the word Agape. A love of the highest form that multiplies and continues to grow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the simplicity of this book. And yet we thank you also for the meat that's in this book. As it is something that should challenge all of us to contend for the faith. In Jesus' name, amen. verse 3, he uses the word. And I'm giving a little bit of a review for those of you uh, who weren't here because of Memorial Day. He uses the term beloved, which is a term of endearment. I care for you. This is imp- you are important to me. Listen to what I have to say. He said, I wanted to write you about your salvation. I wanted to just write you a letter and talk about the grace of God. And I would just love to do that to all of you. God is so good and he's so victorious and he saved us all. And I would like to go on and on and on talking about the grace of God. But Jude says, I can't do that. I need to talk to you about something that's important. I found it necessary, he says, to exhort you. Exhorting is an interesting thing because it's something we don't do enough of, I believe, in the church. In exhorting one another to live a good life, to do those things that we should, to pay attention to the things in the world. And he says, I want to exhort you. I want to bring this to your attention. Contend for the faith, fight for the faith, battle for what you believe, battle for the gospel. The simple good news that God loves you and forgives of sin. Stay with it. That's what Jude is saying. Certain men. I like the way he says that. Certain men. It's just like, or like ordinary men. But certain men. So he knew who these men were that were creeping into the church. They slipped in, it says, these false teachers. We noted that Jesus and Paul and Peter had all written that they would be coming into the church. In, in uh, 4b, the second half of verse 4. He says, but these false teachers are coming in with lewdness or lasciviousness. They're saying that you can come in and you can live a sensual life and that you can sin more and grace will abound and cover your sins. So that's what they were saying. And in the world of Rome and in the world of Corinth and in the world of uh, Greece and Athens and stuff, Sensual living was prevalent. It was what was going on. So people coming into the church were used to that type, type of life. And these false teachers were coming in and saying, you continue because you, can cover, you are covered by the grace of God. You can sin more that grace may abound. And of course, we know Paul said in Romans, God forbid. But what's the question? Why should we contend for the faith? In the first verse, it said we were elected, divinely chosen, we are being sanctified, and we are preserved until the end. Well, if that's the case, then why do I need to contend for it if I have it? So he gives us a reminder. He gives us a lesson from Scripture. And we looked at these three examples from the Old Testament. Peter and Jude both are uh, writers who said, I want to remind you. Just like Pastor Brandon and myself, when we come here, a lot of times we want to remind you things that you should already know, things that you should already have an understanding of, we want to remind you. So the examples that we looked at was first, these are in verses 5 to 7 if you're following along. You know, it's only 25, 25 short verses, so it should be easy to keep up here with us. So verses 5 to 7, God saved Israel. He brought them out of Egypt, but they did not inherit the promised land. The angels were in heaven worshiping the Lord, probably have been leading the worship service, and yet now and yet now they are waiting for the final judgment he used the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah great cities full of wealth but god destroyed them so what did these examples teach us you could be saved by god you could be a worshipper of god you can even be blessed of god and yet not able to remain in the blessedness of god jude is Uh, exhorting us, he's warning us, he's encouraging us to contend for the faith. You're saved, you worship God, and all of you, I know, have a story of where you have been blessed by God. But what happened to change these three examples? False teachers came in. In verse eight, they call them dreamers. An interesting word. Those dreamers were people who were dreaming Daydreaming, lasciviousness about things that were sensual of uh, they were rejecting authority and they were speaking evil of dignitaries in the church. So the main idea defend against false teachers. Being saved like Israel, you could still die in the wilderness. Worshiping God like Satan, you could still be chained up in, in darkness and being blessed like Sodom and Gomorrah, you could be just destroyed, not even not even able to find where the cities are today. Being blessed does not ensure us continual blessings. Then we ended last week by looking at three other Old Testament examples. Jude knew his scripture, and I I liked that as I was studying him. He knew his scripture so well. He didn't even give commentary on it. Last week, as you remember, as we went through these different uh, examples, these six examples that we're talking about, I gave you a little bit of the commentary, the story that went along with these. Jude didn't do that. He just said, the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. And he expected his readers to know what that meant. I explained what those problems were last week. I like the fact that Jude just assumed that you guys knew where Matthew, Mark, and Luke were that you guys knew what the book of Acts was about, that you knew Paul's letters covered different subjects. And I think that that was something that was really interesting. I like, always thought about how when Jesus cried from the cross and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that every Hebrew child immediately went to Psalms 22 and knew that Jesus was setting the stage for what was happening at that point. And that was such a, such a good, confident thing for Jude to be able to write knowing that his that his readers would understand what happened when he said the way of Cain or the heir of Balaam. So false teachers do the same thing today. They, they promote themselves. They override God's authority and they criticize God's servant. Jude has described these false teachers in these words. In verse four, he said they're ungodly, they're lewd or lustful and they're, um, deniers of God. In verse 8, he called them dreamers, defilers of the flesh. They reject authority, and they speak evil of church leaders. And then in verse 10, he said, they even corrupt themselves. In verses 12 and 13, that's where we're picking up new for those of you who, uh, again, we're here both weeks. Sorry for the review, but I want to make sure everybody's on the same page. Verses 12 to 13, he uses word pictures. Jude says of them, they're like hidden reefs in the ocean. Now, for sailors, that's not a good thing. A reef that you can't see is is a bad thing out in the ocean. They only came to serve themselves. They're like clouds without rain, trees without fruit, raging waves that foam up for their own sake, wandering stars, blackness of darkness forever. And so I want to read it to you from the New Living Translation and give you a feel for this. And so those of you who have a good imagination or those of you who are wordsmiths and know how to use words and stuff like that, you can almost picture the things that Jude is trying to tell his audience. So kind of uh, do that as I read through it. These people, these false teachers, eat you in your fellowship meals, eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love. But they are like dangerous reefs. They can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving up any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and they have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. You know, the one thing that was nice about the picture on the screen during the worship about the sheep, they were comfortable and they were eating. There were no wolves. I was afraid a wolf or a fox was going to come in and we were going to have this whole group of sheep running across the thing. I said, oh, no. But there must have been a shepherd around somewhere because there was no danger on those sheep. So uh, I made it through worship. OK, without the sheep scattering. I was a little bit afraid of that. Um, Interesting to note that Jude points out they serve themselves, and that's the case with most false teachers in the church today as they come along to serve themselves. Clouds should bring rain, and the rain should bring growth. And so we want to see that whole agricultural image that he's pointing, that when the cloud comes, the rain comes, the farmers rejoice in the rain because they're able to know that their crop is coming. The trees should bear fruit and that should strengthen us. We just love good fruit that comes from trees, oranges and apples. It strengthens our bodies and that's what should happen here. But these tr- these trees, he emphasizes the fact they're twice dead. It means they've gone through two seasons without producing. You know, in the Bible often you'll read words like truly truly I say unto you or holy holy, I'll, you know, we're talking about the Lord And uh, that's for emphasis that it's said like that. Well, this is the same idea here. There's emphasis being, because it's talking about them being twice dead. They're pulled up by the roots, it says. Matthew 15, Jesus said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. And that's what he's talking about with these false teachers. And then I like this example of wandering stars. You know, I've looked at the the stars with amazement i've never been able to figure out the all the constellations and things like that it always would amaze me when you'd be sitting around with pastor chuck uh we went once on a bible cruise and we were out on the deck and he looked up at the stars and started to name all these different constellations i, said, I don't even see it what are you talking about but he was naming them and he had this understanding of the stars well i understand that people who navigate the oceans depend on the stars and they could actually navigate without a compass or without a map or without a Google or GPL or any of the other stuff that we have, GPS, I'm sorry. And they could actually get along with just the stars. But these stars are wandering stars, and it speaks of that, a lost navigation. Stars should be leading us in the right direction. So these false teachers, Judas is saying, are like the clouds, the trees, or the wandering star. And then he uses Enoch, the seventh from Adam, and he quotes him, saying... In verses 14 and 15, that from the beginning, God has spoken of these false teachers. That in the very beginning, God said that in the last days, these false teachers would be coming. And it would seem that the reference to 10,000 angels speaks of a Lord's Day coming. And the Lord's Day is defined in several different ways. Some say it's when God is active in the affairs of man as he was when Jesus came into the world. That would be the days of the Lord as he's going to be again at the second coming, the Lord's Day. Another one is it's from the time of his birth until the time of his second coming. It's all the Lord's Days when he's actively engaged in the affairs of man. But the Lord is coming in judgment with ten thousands of angels. Both Matthew and Daniel use the same terms, speaking of the angels coming. And note the word, the use of the word ungodly. Talk about a word being repeated about these people. They do ungodly deeds, they commit ungodly, they uh, they are committed in ungodly ways, and all the things are spoken by ungodly sinners. Can you think of a better word to define our nation and our world today than ungodly? We've almost left everything that we were founded on for an ungodly nation becoming an ungodly people in an ungodly world. And that's what, that's what he was saying here. So let's look at those verses 14 and 15, and we'll read through the rest of the chapter. And let's pick it up at verse 12. The, these are spots in your love feast while the feast with you without while they feast with you without fear, they are only serving themselves. These false teachers are clouds without water carried about by the wind, late autumn trees without fruit, and twice dead pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch the seventh from Adam, prophesied about the men, also saying, behold the lord comes with his 10000 of his saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them these false teachers are grumblers complainers walking according to their own lust and their mouth and they mouth great swelling words flattering people to gain advantage But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that he told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause division, not having the spirit. We'll stop there at verse 19. Ungodly. In verses 16 to 19, we see that these false teachers are walking after their own lust. And the ministry and the, being a pastor should never be for our own personal gain. It's always that to be one of service. They flatter to gain advantage over others. That is something that is such an evident thing when they come in and they know who the big givers are in the congregation. And they go up to them and make sure they get a good seat at the dinner table and make sure that they get the biggest piece of meat. That's the flattering that they do for people. They make sure that if there's only one caramel ice cream cone left, that they're the one that's going to get that one because they're the big givers. Well, we don't know who gives. Pastors here, Pastor Brandon and myself, we've never seen an offering in 11 years and we never will see an offering as long as I'm the senior pastor. Because we don't think that's any of our business. That's your business with God's business. People have asked me, how do we give to some of these missionaries you're talking about? How do we give to support the ministry here? There's a little box back there. It's not big. It's, we call it an agape box. You drop check in there or money in there anytime you want to. But we don't take offerings. We just depend on the Lord. For 11 years, we've never charged for a meal. We've never charged for ministry from the book table. We've never charged for a CD if you want one. And I just love it when God provides. It's just a great thing for us to feel that. But we're not going to flatter you so that we can gain advantage over you. Okay? That's not what we're all about. These false teachers are grumblers. They're complainers or fault finders. You know, that's one of the hardest things, I think, in the church is when people grumble and they find... Uh, things uh, bad about what's going on at the church. They just don't like anything. We all have something that we don't like. You know, We may not like this, and we may not like that, and so on and so forth. And that can become grumbling if we're not careful with it. If it's something that irritates, it's something that um, upsets us, then you know that's why we have elders, and we have an elder board here, and we have pastors, and you go talk to them. But you do it, you do it privately, you don't grumble about it. But the false teachers are actually are complainers. They come in and they start to cause discord. In verse 17, he he talks about the Lord's apostles and what they had said. And Paul had actually said, just to give you the references, Paul had said in Acts 20, For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after themselves, not after the Lord, not focusing on the things of Christ, but after themselves. And then Paul wrote to, to Timothy, um, almost his last words, in chapter 3 he said this, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrongs, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Those talking about the false teachers. And then Peter, in 2 Peter 2, the first couple of verses, he said this, But there, will also, there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them and bringing on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth was blasphemed by covetousness, They will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgments has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. And I think that's one of the things that is so sometimes disturbing when we look at those people who are constantly begging and asking for money. And coming before congregations and saying, you know, we're going to have to close our doors if you don't give us money and things like that. Those schemes to bring money in. It's such a shame that that happens. And so I'm so thankful that one of our traditions at Calvary Chapel is not to do that and not to to seek it from that way. In verse 18, it talks about their mockers walking after their own ungodly lusts. They mock even at the leaders in the church and the church. And in verse 19, again, it says they cause division. There are central persons who cause division, not having the spirit. You know, the Lord actually hates those that cause discord amongst the brethren. It's in Proverbs chapter 6. He lists six things that he hates. And the one thing that he hates, one of those things is those who cause discord. Those who are always causing problems. I think one of the most uncomfortable, probably shouldn't say this on the recording. I won't say it. Okay. Yeah, I better not. Um, If you want to know later, come back into the cover. I'll tell you. What a list about these guys. What a list these, these guys are. You would think that they would be easy for us to see because they've been so listed out here by Jude. How can we contend against these false teachers? Now, when I was first studying this in the first beginning, I said, well, those false teachers, man, how do they get away with getting on the pulpit and teaching or getting in charge of a group of people and they're up there speaking and so on and so forth? How about just the people in the church sitting in the pews that are doing the same things, not necessarily in a place up in front? You see, people have come in, and even to our fellowship, people have been challenged who came in and started to spread discord or had started to spread some some confusing doctrines, I'll call them, okay? doctrines that would accuse non-essential things, but trying to make a point out of them. And it was interesting because um, later on, I'll explain why it was interesting, because some of the people that we're supposed to, were supposed to be patient with you as you listen to these false t- teachings, knowing that because of that you will, you, will, you will get it because you've been taught the truth. But others were supposed to go up and grab him and say, Mike, don't listen to that guy anymore because he's taking you down the wrong path. He's leading you in the wrong direction. So people can come in and whisper sweet things or confusing things, even at a dinner table, and they could be considered a false teacher. So we remember the things that God wants us to do. He wants us to enjoy or be kept in his love, it says there, as we, as we move forward. In verse 20, But you, beloved, build yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourself in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some, have compassion, making a distinction. But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments defiled by the flesh. God wants us to enjoy being kept in his love. Remember in the very first verse, he has called you. You're called. You've been elected. He is sanctifying us. He is making us better. He is making us more fit for his work. And he will preserve us. He is going to present us faultless. Remember in verse 3, we are content. We are to contend for that position that we have in the faith. I think it's neat to say that you're elected. I think it's neat to say that you're chosen. And th- those are important words for us as Christians is to know that God himself chose me. Jude is now telling us how to remain in his love. Guess how? Guess what? Another exhortation. Remember back in verse 3, he exhorted us to contend to the faith. Now he is exhorting us to build ourselves up in the faith. We know from Romans 10 that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. The only way for us to be strengthened in our faith is through the word of God. We build our faith by studying his word. By having a daily devotion, by coming together in regular Bible studies, home fellowships. But I also think we develop our faith and strengthen our our study. And our study is when we share our story of how God worked in our life and how his word did something in us one time or how a verse changed our perception in our life. I think telling our stories of God's victories in our life is an amazing way to strengthen each other. Reading biographies, reading autobiographies, we can be strengthened by how God has used other people. But when you, do, when you um, dig down into it and you look at it, almost all of those biographies, almost all those, those autobiographies, almost all of those life stories, when you drill them down, we'll come to a verse, we'll come to a story, we'll come to a book of the Bible that changed the life. And so that's how we do it, by staying in his word. He says there, you are to pray by the Holy Spirit. You know, when you pray, you're never alone. When you got saved, you were dwelled with the Holy Spirit. He's with you. And so you're never by yourself. So you don't have to worry about having someone to pray with the Holy Spirit is there. You may be in solitude. And sometimes I think solitude is the best place to pray, where you can get away, be by yourself, and be quiet and not busy with anything. In this day and age, with cell phones, the way we're, we're glued to them or they're glued to us, depending on your perspective, um, it's hard. But turn it off for an hour. Put it under the pillow so you can't hear it vibrate. Get it away from you. And see if you could spend an hour alone with Jesus and just meditate and pray and wait on the Lord. It's a hard thing to do today. You can pray, you're never alone, but you will be in solitude. We should be asking the Holy Spirit to lead us in our prayers, to guide us in our prayers. And do you know that silence does not scare God? Do you know that if you go into a time of prayer and you say, Lord, Holy Spirit, help me to pray. And then you don't say anything that doesn't bother God at all, because you've come to a place where you're asking the Holy Spirit to lead you in prayer. In Romans, we read um, this in Romans 8. It tells us the spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray or how we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercessions for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Praying in the Spirit. Not praying alone because you're with the Spirit. You know, um, I've told you before that I, had, I was blessed to have a mom who was a mom who prayed. And her tombstone reads, she prayed for us all. That's what we, That's what we took from her life and wanted to remember her. She prayed for us all. I can remember her praying for people in the family that were going through hell. They were going through tough times. And all I heard her saying was the name of Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And I believe that was the Holy Spirit praying through here. She wasn't explaining the problem to God. Now, you know that cousin so-and-so got in an accident, lost her leg, and, you know, they don't know what they're going to do and how they're going to live and how the finances are going to work out and if they can keep their... house. She didn't have to lay out all the details because God knows all the details. And she didn't have to give him the solution. Uh, Now, if you would just heal the leg provide some money and save the house, everything will be wonderful. She didn't have to do that, but she just had to pray in the Spirit. And that's what Jude is telling us, pray in the Spirit. Invite the Holy Spirit to to our prayers. When we pray in the Spirit and we allow the Holy Spirit to guide our prayers, our prayers will be, Lord, align my will to your will. Align my heart to your heart. Let my mind be the same as the mind of Christ. It won't be trying to get, get him to get involved in our life and make our life fit our agenda. It will be saying, Lord, help my life fit your agenda for me. And that's what Jude is saying. Pray in the spirit for that's how we'll get ourselves lined up in the way we should be. In verse 21, it says, keep yourself in the love of God. And we talked about that, about doing it in our, with our study of his word. But, you know, that's the same word as is used in verse 1 for, um, to, to preserve. Let's see. Uh, to those sanctified and preserved in Christ. That's the same Greek word. To be kept. To guard from loss of injury. To keep an eye upon the property that you have purchased. Remember last week I mentioned that property, we are the property of God. He has redeemed us. The word redeemed means he has bought us back. We became his property. He is going to preserve us to get us through this life because we're his property. That's what this is talking about. Keep yourself. Be diligent to remain in a relationship with Jesus Christ, whatever it takes. So the final activity that Jude is recording for us is keep yourself in his love. It's like the initial activity that he referenced when he started his letter. Coming to him for salvation. Didn't he say, I wanted to write to you about your salvation, but I had to change and to write to you about this? Well, that salvation is that first act of faith that we have. But the final act of faith that we need to exercise is staying in his love, being kept in his love. By faith in Jesus and not in your own works, never are we allowed to add works to the equation. It's always by faith. Your sanctification cannot take place by a formula of holy living. If you read a chapter a day, morning, noon, and night, and if you pray right after you read your chapters, you will be more sanctified. You will be more holy. No, that's not how it works. It's allowing the Lord to work in you. Not saying that any of those things are bad. I think you should pray without ceasing. I just think we all need to learn how to pray with our eyes open while we're walking about, while we're driving the car. I think we need to learn how to worship. I got, I got a, 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 a beautiful reproof from one of my granddaughters yesterday because they said, Papa, how come you're not whistling? And you know what? I said, wow, that meant a lot to me because that's what they recognize in me. Now, those some of you in here who are employees, you know, I've been told by the employees when I come up here on Thursdays that they miss that around here. And uh, I have tried to talk, teach Chris how to whistle, but it's not going very good. <laughs> but that was, uh, that was an attribute that was important, and it was, it was pulled out. So it's not by what we do, but it's by the reflection of Christ in us that we will uh, be kept we are to look for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, it says there in verse 21. Um, uh, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. What a difference it makes in our life when we really believe and are looking for and anticipating the return of the Lord. We call it the blessed hope. Titus says this, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. If we really believed that Jesus was coming tonight, what would we watch when we got home? Or would we watch anything? It would help drive us to holy living and being careful with what we do with our time and our energy if we were expecting him to come at any time. What kind of passion would you have for spreading the gospel If you knew he was coming at sunrise tomorrow. Who would you call tonight? Who would you make that last ditch effort? Even if they threw you out of their house. Even if they cursed you out of their house. Even if they said, mom, dad, stop it. You know, I've heard, I've had enough. But if you knew he was coming tomorrow at sunrise. Wouldn't you try to spread the gospel tonight? Would you go to sleep? Would you go to sleep if you knew he was coming soon? And then the last thing I think that a good expectation of Christ's return is it helps us to keep a light hand on the things of the world. And it's not so much how much you have or how big it is or how valuable it is. It's whether or not it controls you. When it controls you, then it's wrong. You've got the wrong touch on the world. So, those are things about the Blessed hope. We have the blessed hope. Jesus is coming, and you look around the world today. you look at the political system, you look at the you know our nation that was you know we wrote in our early papers that we we think that all men were created equal, and uh, where we have gone to from there and it's obvious that something is amiss as we look at the world today um, interesting times so Jude tells us how to deal with the people that have listened to the false teachers who have been caught up by these men who have, these certain men who have creeped into the the church. First, have patience with them. Don't go beat them up. Don't start an arm wrestling match. Don't say... Once saved, always saved. People sit over here. Those of you who think in free will, you sit over here and let's argue it out tonight. We're going to finish it before we go home. That's not the way to do it. You work through those things that cause division within the church. Those those who believe one way or the other, you have patience with them, he says. Others, you might need to get a little bit stronger. You might say, you know what? Hey, Pastor Brandon and I and a couple of the elders would like to talk to you. Can we see you after church tonight? Oh, what's going on? Well, you know that doctrine that you've been talking to people about? You know, you've been telling them that they have to do this or they have to do that, that they really can't be considered a Christian unless they do this or do that. You know, we need you to stop that. And then we need to go find those people that you've talked to and said, you know what, that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's why we go through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. The book of John is is probably one of the greatest books ever. Okay, in the Bible, Uh, it's been said about the book of John that it is so shallow. So simple that a child can wander through it and understand it. But it's also so deep that theologians the size of elephants can walk in it and not even grasp all that's in it. It's that kind of book. Um, It's got it all. It's got the deity of Christ, who he is. It's got the gospel in it. It's got great understandings. What a great time to take studying the Bible seriously is with the gospel of John. I would recommend you spend that hour and you read through it once completely first. Then you read and read and reread the first chapter. And then, you know, find another hour, two hours in the week. Can you find two hours in one week? I don't know. Is that, is that mathematically possible? To find two hours in one week. Find two hours and read the Gospel of John. If you diligently study the Gospel of John, you will never be the same. I promise you that. I know it's true. I know it's true. I can tell you about a 65-year-old man. Raised Catholic all his life. One of 13 in a big Italian family first cousin was the Archbishop of Brooklyn. Gave him a good news for modern man, sat him down at a table and said, just read it like a book. Don't try to figure it out, just read it. Got to the Gospel of John. Got to the third chapter. Closed the book, looked me in the eye and said, I got it. I know what I have to do. I need to ask Jesus to come into my heart. And I said, yeah, Dad, you do. And we prayed for him to become a Christian. Gospel of John's a great book. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. How's that, Brandon? Is that good? Okay. We need to help each other. When people have differences of opinion, false doctrine creeps in, opinions start to cause division and anxieties amongst people. Don't let it happen, church. Don't let it happen here. Bring it to my attention, Brandon's attention. Go to some of the people that teach, teach in the Bible college. Go to somebody that you know, one of the elders, and say, hey, I've been hearing this, or I've been seeing this, or I've been listening to this pastor on the radio, and he's been talking about this. Help me through this thing, would you? And we'll get you the answers. We'll, we'll, we'll make them clear for you. So Jude finishes this letter <clears throat> with, a do- with a doxology, dealing with God's ability and not our ability. You know, we can go through the whole Bible and point out examples of where God's ability won the battle and man's ability failed, didn't show up at all. I was thinking about some of those things. I thought about Joseph. And how in the world is this guy who just came down and was a slave, was a prisoner, and now he's been given the ability to interpret a dream, and he knows that there's a famine coming for seven years, He's probably not a farmer, an agricultural guy that knows bushels and all that stuff. Now, how is he going to figure out seven years of taking it in and seven years of going it out? Didn't have a MacBook Pro to figure out the calculations. Couldn't do an Excel spreadsheet on it. But somehow he figured that out, not because of who he was, but because of who God was. How's Moses going to lead a million and a half people through a desert? And feed him. And Moses, even if he said, you know, I can do this thing. Because it's only 11 days from here to there. I can do this thing. When God said, take another lap around the mountain. Because of your murmuring. Take another lap around the mountain because of your disobedience. Keep going around that mountain, Moses, for 40 years. It's because God was able. And Joshua, coming into the promised land. March around the city for seven days, blow trumpets, be, be quiet, and then blow trumpets? What, what about my swords? What about my slingshots? What about all the stuff? What, I'm a general, for heaven's sakes. I'm a general. And you're telling me to walk around silently? It's because of God's ability, not man's ability. And the three Hebrew children, you know their story. They wouldn't bow down. They got thrown into the fiery furnace. Just before they went in, they said this to the king. Our God is able to save us. We won't bow down to the cross. John the Baptist had these words to say. He was at the Jordan and baptizing. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers. That's not a real nice thing to say to leaders of the religious organization. Brood of vipers is pretty bad, okay? Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. He's even given them a chance. He's saying, you brood of vipers, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, repent. <clears throat> bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Another group of people that were hanging on to their tradition. For I say to you, God is able to rise up children. To Abraham, from these stones, John the Baptist was putting them down, and he was saying that God is able. Paul, in writing to the Romans, tells about Abraham, we read, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead. Do you remember Abraham was an old man? His wife was old. they didn't think they could have babies. He was about a hundred years old and dead, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform it. This doxology, let's look at that, verses 24 to 25. But to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory and exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. That first word in that doxology, verse 24, now is, a, is an okay translation, but the word but is, makes it a better translation because it kind of gets you away from all the false teacher language that he's been talking about. So if God is able to keep us from stumbling or falling in the New King James Version or in the King James Version, what is he saying? Is he keeping me from sinning? You know, He's going to present us faultless, so is he going to keep us from sinning? Remember the words in the beginning of Jude, you are called, you are sanctified, and you are preserved in Christ. We know that. He won't allow us to stumble into sin but he will not prevent us from walking into sin. You want to debate whether or not you have free will or not? Go exercise it tonight and do something that you know is desperately wrong, according to the scripture, and find out if you have free will or not. He won't stop you from walking into sin, but he will help you and prevent you from stumbling or falling. In verse 24, the very first part of it, he says, He's able to keep us from falling. But then positionally in verse 24, he's going to present us faultless. I think that's a wonderful thing if we can just grasp it. It's a hard one. I don't know. I won't ask you to raise your hands. Raise your hands in your own heart. How many of you have sinned this last week? How many of you have doubted God, been bitter, disrespectful, disobedient, unloving, unkind, and I could go on. Has anybody still not raised their hand yet? Oh, you haven't? Okay. Uh, <laughs> prideful? <laughs> well, we'll keep going until we find something, you know, that, that we have all sinned. But positionally, because of, because of Jesus Christ... Because of the cross, because of his blood, and what he's done for you. And you're probably raising your hand positionally, aren't you? Because positionally, we are faultless. We are, we are totally perfect in our position before Jesus right now. We can't grasp it. We can't understand it. But we need to believe it. We need to believe that we are there. And we need to believe that he is able to present us faultless. We have that assurance. The audience to whom Jude was writing was vulnerable to heresies and to temptation towards immoral living. Jude encouraged the believers to remain firm in their faith and trust God's promises for the future. Sometimes that was very hard for them. It's important as they as they were living in time of increased apostasy within the church. But we too today are living in the last days, and we're much closer to the end than the readers of Jude when it was originally written. We are too we are also very vulnerable to doctrinal error. That's why we expositionally teach the Bible. Because if we cover the whole Bible, you'll hear the whole word. And you'll see all of the verses that pertain to the important doctrines of Scripture. We are too, very much today, tempted to give in to sin. to sin Every day, many, many different ways. Contending for the faith. Not denying our faith, but hanging on to it. You know, it usually doesn't happen by intellectual dissent. You know, if you talk to kids at college these days or people who want to sit around and drink coffee at Starbucks and philosophize about life, it's not an intellectual decision that people make to fall away from the Lord. That's not what happens. But it's by the practice of disobedience. You know, if you want to know how to receive blessings, be obedient. Obedience always precedes blessings. It's always been that way. I think there's a few formulas in the Bible, tithing and, and such, and other issues that are in the Bible. That if you learn those little formulas, they really help obedience before blessing. It's one of those that I think is is pretty well proven throughout the Bible. Um, so we are encouraged to remember that He is able to keep us from falling, to bring us into His presence, faultless, into His glory and to do that with exceedingly great joy. So we're excited about that. The epistle of Jude, one short chapter. He had a lot to say in it. You could read it over in 15 minutes a night before you go to bed. And I've told you that before. I think sometimes going back and reading the scripture that was taught to you, looking at your notes if you made any, just before you go to bed is a great way to kind of cement Uh, the teaching, and cement the word of God into you. So if you want to, the whole book of Jude in 15 minutes or less. Only 25 verses, only 1,613 words, but still much to learn. So one of my granddaughters asked me this morning, of course, I was all done with my notes and everything. She says, why is Jude so short? Why is you so short? I don't know. Why is you so short? What kind of question is that? That's not theological. It's got nothing yeah. to do. Why is you so short? Ran out of paper? Ran out of ink? Why is you so short? And, I, and so I told her that I was going to say that. And I went, and on the way up, and I said I, I think I have an answer. And she wanted to know what it was, and I wouldn't tell her. So she has to. She had to. She had to wait like you. I would think that it's because this one issue is what he wanted to focus on so much he didn't want to get it into a lot of things I think that's why he kept it to the one point contend for the faith fight for the faith battle for the faith the main idea is defend the faith against false teachers and this is done only one way and that's for us to know his word is the only way we can do that 2 Timothy 4.18, Paul tells Timothy, These are the last words of the Apostle Paul that he writes of instruction to Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, who's going to carry on. There's a few words of of, um, salutations after these words, but these are the last words of meaning. He says, The Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You know, we all have that same assurance that the Lord is going to present us before him faultless. He's going to present us into his glory and he's going to present us with exceedingly great joy. Let's pray.